for many years in Geneva, and then he returned in 2007 to Port Stewart Baptist on the North Coast. Uh, he's recently complete, completed a master's program of study and has a both a wide preaching and teaching ministry connected to many churches and various Bible colleges. And we've appreciated Alan's visited uh, us in the past and his teaching on many occasions. And I'd like to hand the rest of the service over to Alan. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Uh, good to be back again this evening. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 21. As Richard's already been saying, uh, this is the first part of a series that's going to run over the next three weeks. David Farrell is going to be uh, speaking, uh, continuing this theme next week and uh, the following week. Um, and uh, although I think the, the general uh, focus is the last two chapters in Revelation, I think the particular focus really centers on the first three verses of Revelation chapter 21. And so I want to begin by uh, reading not just the first three verses, but just a little bit further uh, into verse 5, Revelation chapter 21. So this is John writing in his uh, vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And behold, the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And may God help us as we uh, think about His Word uh, this evening. In January 1991, which some of you won't remember because you weren't yet born, uh, the then president of the United States of America was George Bush, George Bush Sr. And uh, in that month, he made a speech to his fellow citizens of America, uh, and the occasion was the invasion of Iraq at the time of the first Gulf War. Iraq had just recently invaded Kuwait, and in response to that, uh, America was going to invade Iraq. And here's what he said. He said, this is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and cold war. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the United Nations founders. A couple of months later, when the war finished, he made a speech, this time to the American Congress, and here's what he said. Now we can see a new world coming into view a world in which there is the very real prospect of 
a new world order. In the words of Winston Churchill, a world order in which the principles of justice and fair play protect the weak against the strong. A world where the United Nations, freed from Cold War stalemate, is poised to fulfill the historic vision of its founders. A world in which freedom and respect for human rights find a home among all nations. The Gulf War put this new world to its first test, and my fellow Americans, we pass that test. Tonight, as our troops begin to come home, let us recognize that the hard work of freedom still calls us forward. We've learned the hard lessons of history. The victory over Iraq was not waged as a war to end all wars. Even the new world order cannot guarantee an era of perpetual peace, but enduring peace must be our mission. Now, even if you slept through half of that, you probably noticed that there was a recurring phrase. He kept talking about a new world order. And he said about a new world order that in this new world order, nations would operate by the rule of law, not by the law of the jungle. He said that justice and fair play would protect the weak against the strong. He said that freedom and respect for human rights would find a home among all nations. And yet, he recognized that even the new world order would not necessarily guarantee peace. You see, when he said all of those things, he was encouraged by the end of the Cold War, the standoff between the United States and Russia. Obviously, in the decades uh, prior to that, there'd been the Second World War, and not very long before that, the First World War. And as he surveyed history and what he thought was the direction of history, he thought there was this, that, that people were standing on the threshold of, of this new world order. It wasn't, it wasn't something that he thought everybody was automatically going to fall into line with, but he said, we need to build this new world order, and he saw it as a possibility. Now, we're almost three decades beyond the time when he was making those speeches, and we realize with the benefit of, of our standpoint uh, in the history of the, of the planet that that goal that he aspired to actually proved somewhat elusive. There would be another war in Iraq. The Balkans would erupt during the course of the 1990s in a series of civil wars that would bring in NATO. And you think about Sudan and Darfur, you think about Armenia, Azerbaijan, you think about Yemen, you think about Syria, you think about the Arab Spring. And when you think about it, in some ways, the past 20 years, the past couple of decades, have seen relationships among peoples and people groups maybe even more fractured than ever, or just as fractured as ever. But wouldn't it be great if he was right, and there was a possibility of a new world order. Maybe if I could borrow from Tolkien, a new world where everything sad would become untrue. Now, I want to suggest as we begin looking at Revelation chapter 21, we think about it as a picture of a new world order. In the previous chapter, John chapter 20, John had talked about how earth and sky had fled from the presence of God. God was sitting on a great white throne of judgment, and there was nowhere for earth or sky to hide from Him. And now he tells us in the beginning of chapter 21 that the first heaven and the first earth have gone, and now there's a new heaven and a new earth, with the added detail that there's no longer 
any sea. Now, the way those first few verses work, uh, that's the setting for some other new things. So, there's a new uh, heaven and a new earth. That's the setting for a new Jerusalem, which David will be talking about next week. And it's the setting for a new dwelling place for God that's also talked about in, this, in those first three verses, which David will be talking about in a couple of weeks' time, a new dwelling place for God among His people. But our focus tonight is on that setting of a new heaven and a new earth. And the first thing I want to talk about is really to try to set that idea uh, in the context of the big story of the Bible. When the Bible talks about heaven and earth, those words, when, when they come together, it tends to mean what we would call the entire universe, heaven and earth and everything that's in between them and everything that's encompassed by them, the entire universe. And when John talks about a new heaven and a new earth, in other words, a new universe, he wasn't the first person to use language like this. Uh, in fact, he borrows very significantly from Isaiah. This is what Isaiah says in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. God speaks and says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And interestingly, in that paragraph, Isaiah goes on to talk about Jerusalem, and he goes on to talk about how in Jerusalem, there will be no, long, no longer be the sound of weeping. There will no longer be the, sigh, the, 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 the sound of the cry of distress. And you see how much what John writes in Revelation 21 echoes those things that Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 65. Nor was John alone in the New Testament. Listen to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, it's not just George Bush Sr. who's standing at a particular era in history and thinking, won't it be great that there's going to be this new world order? But it's a desire and an aspiration that also reflects the desires of the Old Testament people of God as they faced exile from Jerusalem, something we talked about this morning, a time when there would be a new heaven and a new earth, and Jerusalem would be free from suffering. Or the New Testament believers living under the threat of Roman persecution and aspiring to a time when there would be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, one of the things that you'll notice about the last couple of chapters of Revelation, and maybe David will draw some more of this out over the next couple of weeks, is the way that there are things mentioned in these last two chapters of Revelation which echo some of the things that you find in the first few chapters of Genesis echoes in the last couple of chapters of the Bible with things that are talked about in the first few chapters of the Bible. For example, if you were to go to, Gen uh, to Revelation chapter 22, you would find there that John talks about the tree of life. He says it's on either side of the water of life or the river of the water of life, and that its healing, its, 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 its leaves rather, are for the healing of the nations, the tree of life there for the healing of the nations. Where have you read about the tree of life before? Well, you read about it in the book of Genesis, in the first three chapters. It was the tree that, was, that, that Adam and Eve were prevented from, from eating from it after they had chosen to disobey God, and they were banished from the Garden of Eden, excluded from the tree of life at the beginning of the story, 
And yet, at the end of the story, the tree of life is there, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's one example. And I think there's an even more obvious echo in that phrase when John simply says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What are the first words of our Bible, the beginning of Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now John is saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I think those echoes remind us that even though there's a sense in which our Bible that we read, that we have, is a collection of 66 books with a range of different human authors written at different times across a, a considerable period of time, nonetheless, when you put it all together, it is a story that has a beginning and it has an end. It's a story that's actually going somewhere. It's a story that you can sum up in four words. Number one, creation, the story that's told in the opening pages of the Bible. It's a good creation. God saw that it was good. And the design and the majesty of this creation are meant to point us to the wisdom and the majesty of God Himself, the Creator. Second word is the word fall. It's the story of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve decide to declare their independence from God, and they find themselves excluded from the tree of life and from the whole of the Garden of Eden. And they find themselves living in a world of brokenness and struggle. The third word is redemption, creation, fall, redemption. And it's a word that talks about the heart of God's plan. It's a rescue act. And that rescue act finds its center in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. On a personal level, we find that redemption that He accomplishes on the cross means the forgiveness of our sins. It's what Paul describes it as in, in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians. But it's more than that, because in the work of Christ, God is actually preparing to bring everything that's been broken back together again. Creation, fall, redemption, and then pointing forward to the future to restoration, where there will be a time when everything will be brought together in Christ, and God will, in the words of Revelation 21 verse 5, make all things new. That's the story that the Bible writers are telling us. That is the story in which you and I live out our individual stories. That's the world that we live in. It's a world which is part of God's originally good creation, and yet it's a world which has been marred and marked by the fall and rebellion. It's a good and yet broken creation. You know, think about it. You can still be amazed at a spectacular sunset, the majesty of a spectacular sunset. You can enjoy a superb meal. You can delight in the enjoyment of friends or family. You can listen to birds singing. You can be refreshed by a glass of cold water on a warm day. It is a good creation for us to enjoy. But at the same time, airplanes fall out of the sky. Earthquakes devastate entire cities. People explode bombs in crowded marketplaces. One part of the world's population probably throws away enough food in the course of a week to feed another part of the world that's dying from starvation. People get sick. We stand at gravesides and say goodbye to people that we've loved. It's a good creation, but yet the fall has left its mark. 
And what does it mean then to think? God says, I am making everything new. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I want you to notice a little detail about that. It's something that I think we often miss. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see, I think, and I want to be careful not to walk on toes, because I, I know Richard read something at the beginning. I don't know who wrote that, but uh, I want to be careful. I don't want to walk on toes. But what Richard read at the beginning, if you don't mind me saying, said that we have an eternal home in heaven. And I think we often think like that, don't we? That that is our eternal home. And we're not quite sure what it means, what it's going to look like, but we somehow imagine that we're going to spend eternity as disembodied spirits, kind of floating around heaven in some way. We reckon there'll be mansions. We reckon there'll be streets that are paved with gold. But I think many of us have missed this bit about the new heaven and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. God's dwelling comes down to where people are. I think you see the same thing. Sometimes when someone dies, particularly after a debilitating illness that's taken a, heaven, a, a very heavy toll on them, or when age has weakened them, maybe through dementia, to a point where they're virtually a prisoner in their own body, and death comes. There's a sense in which we say, well, they've been set free from that. They've been freed from a body that has failed them. They've been freed from a body that was weak and that was full of pain and full of illness. But that's not the complete picture. That's not the complete picture that the New Testament gives us. The fuller picture of the hope that a Christian has is that at death, after death, we will actually be transformed to be like Jesus. And that includes our physical bodies. Remember, and be very careful about this, it was not just the soul of Jesus that was raised again on Easter Sunday. And when ascension happened and Jesus left His disciples, it wasn't just the soul of Jesus that was taken up into heaven. Jesus was taken up in a physical body. It was a physical body that seems to have been different in some ways, but yet it was still His, his body. It was different from what it was before His crucifixion and, and, and after His crucifixion. After His crucifixion, it still bore the marks of crucifixion. It still bore the marks of crucifixion, but yet somehow it was different. There was a connection between what was and, and, what, and what it then became. And I think in all of the mystery and as we try to understand what our future hope is, we need not to miss this. Our future hope is not simply release from our body, but it's the transformation of our body. And as John has this vision of this new world order, it's not just a heaven for souls. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And the New Testament picture is that we rise with new bodies, transformed bodies, to live in that future state. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, of course, it raises lots of questions, and here's one of the questions that I want to just uh, touch on for a moment or two. If there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new universe, if we can call it that, the new universe, well, what happens to the first one when the second one appears? If a new one appears, what happens to the, 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 the one that was there before? 
John simply says uh, in Revelation 21, he says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They had moved on. And instead, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And at face value, it looks very simply as though the first universe has simply been taken away somewhere we don't know where, maybe burnt up, destroyed, and it's been replaced by this new universe. But where does the first universe go? Does it just simply cease to exist? And is there any connection between the old universe and the new universe? Now, that's a, that's a question that has been discussed by uh, theologians and biblical scholars. It's discussed today by them, but it's been discussed actually since some of the earliest centuries in the history of the church. People have had different views on it. And basically, there are two views uh, as, as, to what, as to what happens. Here's the first one. The first basic idea is that God will come in judgment, what's called the day of the Lord. He will burn up the first universe, and He will replace what has been destroyed with a new universe. And the main verses that people will look to in order to, to support that view would be, for example, Revelation 21 verse 1, the old heaven and the old earth, the first heaven and the first earth, rather, had passed away, or 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, which, which has quite a number of references to fire and destruction. And people will look to that and say, well, see, this is just all going to burn up in judgment. God's just going to destroy it. He's going to toss it away, and He's going to build a new one instead. A few years ago, there was a well-known American preacher. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was speaking at a conference, and he made this comment. He said, I know who made the environment. He's coming back, and he's going to burn it all up. So, yes, I drive an SUV. Now, apparently, he was criticized for his comments, so he issued some kind of apology. Now, he maybe would look at Second Peter chapter 3. Well, it's all going to burn up anyway, so it doesn't really matter what we do to, do to it in the meantime. Now, I don't think that Second Peter chapter 3, however you understand it, requires that kind of atti that attitude. But sometimes that's actually the reputation that Christians have. But even if God eventually destroys this universe, in order to replace it with a new universe, surely it doesn't justify you and me trashing it like an old piece of rubbish. You know what it is? You go for a walk in the countryside, and you see in the, along the side of the road, people have had their McDonald's, and they've tossed out their wrappers and their paper cups or cans or whatever it might be, tossed it out at the side of the road, and you think, you know, what's wrong with people that they do that kind of stuff? Well, is it any different if we just trash God, the world that God has made. This is God's word, world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and we have been entrusted with it as stewards. That doesn't mean that we worship it. That would be idolatry or pantheism, but we need to treat it with reverence because we reverence the one who has made it, and we worship the one who has made it, and we treat it as stewards. So, that's one view, is that God will just destroy this, this universe and replace it. The other view is that God will come in judgment, and there will be fire, but the fire is not a fire that burns everything up irreparably. It's a fire that is used to purify, and the result will be a new heaven and a new earth that have been purged of evil. In other words, instead of annihilation and replacement, you have restoration and renewal. And among other things, people would look at, uh, for example, Romans chapter 8, which talks about the creation, the created order. And it says that it's groaning 
It's longing for the day of redemption. And it says that that created order has been subjected to futility, and it looks forward to a day when it will be set free from its bondage to decay. And so, folk would say, Romans chapter 8, the created order, with all of its brokenness, is actually looking forward to a time when it's set free from decay. doesn't seem the same as just burning it all up and tossing it away to replace it with something else. Now, I actually think there's a, there's a tension between these two things, and I think you see it even in Revelation chapter 21. I think when John says that the first universe had passed away, well, that makes you lean towards the idea, well, it's gone, and here's a completely new one starting from scratch. But what God says in verse 5, I think maybe sends us in a different direction. Because as several people have noticed, God doesn't say, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. Now, either way, there's going to be a radical change, a sufficient transformation for this to be called a new world order. And that takes me to another question. What's it going to be like? We talked about George Bush and uh, how he saw the new world order politically and internationally, but what about the new world order that John sees? Well, it's interesting he highlights a particular feature right at the beginning that, that strikes you as a little odd. He says, there was no more sea. I can remember a number of years ago, one of the speakers at New Horizon, uh, he, he spent an entire evening preaching on that part of the verse. There was no more sea, an entire evening on, on one verse. Um, it's a tough verse, isn't it, in some ways? Say you like scuba diving or something like that. You know, you look at, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, well, that seems wonderful, but no scuba diving, no windsurfing. I mean, if you have uh, your holiday cottage on the north coast or in Donegal somewhere, and you like nothing better during the summer than just going for a long walk along a beach in Donegal and, and looking at the ocean and, and, and praying as you walk and so on, and you think, why would God do away with the sea? The sea's wonderful. Well, maybe we need to think uh, a little differently. Maybe we need to think, for example, about what Isaiah says in Isaiah 57. He says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. See, that's a different way of thinking about the sea, isn't it? It's quite different from Port Stewart Strand. Here's the sea that never rests, and it tosses up mire and dirt. And it would be no bad thing, would it, to be living in a new world order where there's no restlessness, for there's not something that's constantly churning up rubbish and disturbance. And as for the book of Revelation itself, chapter 13 tells us that it's from the sea that there appears the notorious beast. And so maybe how we need to read this is that in this new world order, there'll be no churning evil, there'll be no beasts to emerge from the sea and to cause chaos. And this new universe as the verses go on to say, will be the setting for this new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. This will be the setting for God to dwell among men and women. Just as He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there's another echo for you. 
He will be His people's God, and they will be His people. That's a theme that runs all the way through Scripture as well. And you notice, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to see this, that the first thing He does, He wipes every tear away from the eyes of His people. Wipes them away. And then John says there's a few other things that are going to be taken away as well. They're going to be missing. There will be no more death. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. And there will be no more pain. That's the picture of the new world order. In fact, John says, the old order of things has passed away. There's that word again. Along with the first heaven and the first earth. And we will live in, a, in an existence that no longer experiences anything that has come and belongs to the fall. The former things will have passed away. Some of you may have heard a story that John Ortberg tells uh, in one of his books. It's a story of a woman who'd been diagnosed with a terminal illness and uh, given a, just a short time to live. She sent for the pastor of her church so that uh, they could discuss some of the aspects of her final wishes. They talked about the songs that she wanted to have sung at her service, talked about the parts of the Bible that she wanted to have read, and she said that she'd like to be buried with her favorite Bible in her left hand. And just before her pastor left her, she said she had one more request, and it was an odd request. She said she wanted to be buried with a fork in her right hand. And she explained to him how she'd noticed something in all the years of attending that church. There'd been various meals and social events, and uh, the dishes would be cleared at the end of the main course, and someone would always say, make sure you keep your fork. And she said when she heard people say, keep your fork, she knew that something better was on the way chocolate cake, apple pie, keep your fork. So she said to the pastor, I just want people to see me there with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder what's with the fork. Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's the setting of our future hope, a new heaven and a new earth. But, you know, just as I finish, we live in the tension, don't we, of the now and the not yet. The tension of believing that God is going to make all things new, and yet realizing, well, we still live in a broken world. And yet, isn't it true that what our Christian faith means is that somehow the new has already broken in, the coming of Jesus with the work of Jesus? Doesn't Paul say, if anyone is in Christ— new creation. It's the beginning of it. Today's Pentecost Sunday. And just as Psalm 104 says, it's when God sends His Spirit that the land is renewed, 
So you and I have the opportunity, even while we wait for the perfect restoration of everything, we have the opportunity to experience the renewal that the Spirit brings. And I want to close with the words of a prayer just slightly adapted from a man called John Parlberg. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, at the beginning of time you moved over the face of the waters. You breathe into every living being the breath of life. Come, Creator Spirit, and renew the whole creation. Holy Spirit, voice of the prophets, you inflame men and women with a passion for your truth, and through them call your people to the ways of justice and compassion. Come, Spirit of righteousness, and burn in our hearts. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, by your power Jesus came to bring good news to the poor and release to those held captive. Come, liberating Spirit, and free us from the powers of sin and death. Holy Spirit, Advocate, Teacher, you speak to us of our Lord and show us the depth of His love. Come, Spirit of truth, abide in us and lead us in the way of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, wind and flame, you filled disciples with joy and courage, empowering them to preach your word and to share your good news. Come, Spirit of power, make us bold witnesses of your redeeming love. Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, you break down barriers of race, language, and culture, and heal the divisions that separate us. Come, reconciling Spirit, and unite us in the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, Lord, giver of life, at the close of the age, all creation will be renewed to sing God's praises. Come, Creator Spirit, and make us new creations in Jesus Christ. Amen.